0: Welcome to Season 3 of What Really Happened, executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gowertz, in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to JenksPod.com contributors. With Season 3 coming to an end, Don't forget, we had 16 episodes this season, so now we got about 50 in total, so you can always listen back to previous episodes. It's 12.42 a.m., March 8th, 2014. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 is taking off from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, en route to Beijing, China. On board is the pilot-in-command, 53-year-old Captain... Zahari Ahmed Shah, who goes by Captain Zahari. The first officer is 27-year-old Farik Abdul Hamid. There are 10 flight attendants and 227 passengers. At 101 AM and 108 AM, Captain Zahari radios in that the plane has leveled off at 35,000 feet, essentially smooth sailing. As the plane gets closer to Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction, there is one more standard communication between Captain Zahari and the controller at Kuala Lumpur. But by 1.21 a.m., 39 minutes after takeoff, the airplane vanishes from air traffic control screens. Radars would later show that the plane took a stunning 180-degree turn heading back to Malaysia. The flight then went in and out of Malaysian and Taiwanese airspace. Some 10 days after the accident, it was reported that around 6 a.m., some seven hours after the flight had taken off, a radar showed the plane was still flying. This radar revealed that the plane could have ended up anywhere from Central Asia to the Southern Indian Ocean. It would never be heard from again. Pieces of debris have been found on the coast of Africa and on Indian Ocean Islands. But the bulk of the plane has never been located. Now, it remains one of the biggest mysteries of the decade and in aviation history. Why did the plane travel back over Malaysia? Who was flying the aircraft? What really happened? There's an abundance of theories as to what happened. For example, some have suggested that over the South China Sea, the plane had been accidentally shot down by U.S.-Thai Joint Strike Fighters during a military exercise. Others have suggested that it was shot down in some sort of terrorist attack.
1: Well, we of course have the scenario, could the plane have been shot out the sky? This is Mark Williams
0: Thomas, an award-winning investigative reporter and a recipient of the international Peabody. He spoke with aviation safety experts and a wide variety of people when investigating the case of Malaysia Airlines Flight 370.
1: The scenarios that don't support that is that there is no mass uh, wreckage to be found. And of course, nobody is admitting to that. And there is no reference in terms from any of the countries to say that as such an occurrence has taken place. So I think that is completely ruled out.
0: Additionally, one of the first actions terrorists take after an attack is to claim responsibility. They want the world to know what they just did. That never happened here.
1: Another theory? The idea that a plane has landed somewhere and been in a position where the occupants have uh, either been kept hostage or something like that. Well, firstly this is a very long time ago now so you'd have to be keeping the hostages for a very long period of time. But secondly, is the area to which the plane vanished is eventually by land covered by air traffic controllers. So there would have been some kind of radar pickup of this plane. So there was no location to which that plane could go.
0: Other theories include Israeli agents taking over the plane and trying to attack Iran, but there's no evidence. Another, the Malaysia's inspector general of police once said, Maybe somebody on the flight has bought a huge sum of insurance, who wants family to gain from it, or somebody who has owed somebody so much money, you know, we are looking at all possibilities. But again, there was never any evidence of insurance fraud. Another theory, a Malaysian minister and endless people on social media said that MH370 disappeared in a location that is on the exact opposite side of the globe to the Bermuda Triangle, and thus something similar was happening, some sort of scientific phenomena. Well, on this one, for starters, it's not on the exact opposite side of the globe. There are dozens of theories, several books, search groups from the UK, the US, Australia, Malaysia, and elsewhere independent organizations, oceanographers, aviation experts, safety experts, endless articles, and blog posts. Before getting into more likely scenarios of what happened, I think it's important to first understand why there are so many theories. I think, and this is just an opinion, you can look closely at two reasons. One, the Malaysian government made things more difficult throughout the process. It's also worth noting The government owned the airline and were worried about their image. In fact, they had made mistakes prior to this incident. For instance, the airline itself hadn't fully complied with international standards. They also made mistakes once the flight took that 180-degree turn. The Boeing 777 should never have been allowed to fly back to and over Malaysia in the way it did, at least without the military intercepting the aircraft to some degree. Anthony Davis, a Bangkok-based analyst for a defense and security intelligence firm, told Time magazine, There was clearly a significant failure of response on behalf of the Malaysian Air Force. There's no real way around it, and you might imagine heads would roll for that. And then there were mistakes made once the plane was missing. The Malaysian government took four days to admit they had been searching the wrong area. That, is a lot of lost time that they could never get back to find debris." Said Mark William
1: Thomas. I mean, authorities around the world handle things in very different ways. I've covered major crime around the whole of the world. And the Malaysian authorities effectively shut down. They shut down in terms of communication to the media, but they certainly shut down in terms of communication to the families. They were preventing them from having any information. That said, It's important to note
0: that for some in the region, the Malaysian government was being transparent. In an article in the Washington Post on March 31, 2014, the chief executive of the Kuala Lumpur-based think tank, Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs said, it's a shame it takes a plane crash to make our government open and transparent. What we're seeing is a significant improvement from before. Context does show Many different ways of looking at how the government handled this situation, but in my opinion, the government's lack of transparency made things a lot more difficult. Reason number two. I don't think the media, specifically places like CNN, were treating this as seriously as they could have been. Maybe I'm naive to think that it could have been an opportunity to put some of the finest investigative journalists in the world on the ground in Malaysia and elsewhere to demand the truth. Instead, we got this. What if it was something fully that we don't really
1: understand? A lot of people have been asking about that, about black holes and on and on and on, and all of these conspiracy theories. Let's look at this. Uh, Noah says, what else can you think about? Black hole, Bermuda Triangle. And then Deji says, "Huh? just like the movie Lost. And of course, they're also referencing the Twilight Zone, which is a very similar plot. That's what people are saying. I know it's
0: preposterous, but is it preposterous? That was CNN anchor Don Lemon.
2: Well, when anything like a disaster of any kind happens, cable news
0: is always the same. It overdoes it. This is Jay Rosen, a press critic, writer, and professor of journalism at New York University. He is a member of the George Foster Peabody Awards Board of Directors. It goes on air without knowing the facts. It's advises
2: uh, what is known on the air it speculates wildly before there's enough information to restrain that speculation and that's just what cable news does it's it's like an animal
0: in that news clip with don lemon they had eight different people providing insight none seemed to be on the ground in malaysia but instead at different tv studios the reason that it is so profitable is that
2: the programming costs are low. So you could look at cable news as a programming strategy in which the things that happen on screen don't have writers or actors or makeup artists because they happen in the real world. And so instead of building ratings, grabbing programming from actors and plots and TV shows, You just use stuff that happens in the world, and and it's
0: cheaper because you don't have to pay people. Imagine, instead of eight people pontificating, they had eight aviation safety experts or investigative journalists on the ground asking questions. One news organization that I do think put someone incredibly reputable on the ground is ABC.
3: In the case of Malaysia, I was there. I was there for six weeks with ABC News.
0: This is Christine Negroni. She is an aviation safety specialist and for years was an air accident investigator. She is also the author of the best-selling book, The Crash Detectives.
3: I think the media does not do a particularly good job covering aviation safety in general and accidents in particular. And I think there's, re- there's good reasons for that, or at least uh, understandable reasons for that, and some not-so-understandable reasons. The understandable reasons are it is complex. And there's a lot of, uh, I call it the bamboozle, you know, the bamboozle effect.
0: Here's one simple example. Many aviation experts and the media, I'll be more specific shortly, have pointed to this being a murder-suicide, in which the pilot purposely crashed the plane. One reason people believe this is because the A cars was turned off. The ACARS is a digital data link system for the transmission of messages between the aircraft and ground stations. Essentially, it's a pivotal machine that allows the people on the plane to communicate back to the people on the ground. This was turned off on Flight 370. By the pilot turning this machine off, it indicates he wanted to prevent any communication. This suggested that it was clearly a murder-suicide. Well, not so fast, said Christine.
3: The aviation spokespeople get up, you know, the Civil Aviation Authority or whoever it was gets up and they say, Well, the A Cars was switched off. We know the A Cars was switched off. So that means the pilots did it. Well, that statement is is not knowable. They can know one thing. The A Cars stopped working. But they did not know that it was shut off. There's no way of knowing what was the mechanism for the ACAR stopped working. Maybe a bird flew in and hit the control. Maybe the pilot went unconscious and his head knocked into the button. Who knows? But we don't know that the pilots intentionally did it.
0: This surprised me. I had assumed for weeks it was a fact that the pilots had turned it off because that's what has been reported. I assumed that that was somehow knowable.
3: Intentionality is not knowable from 32,000 feet. So the media gets a lot of things wrong because they don't know to look at the person talking to them and say, can you tell me how you know that? Because if you asked the guy, how do you know it was intentionally switched off? He would have had to say, well, we don't know it was intentional, but we know it stopped working. And from that one statement, that one misstatement, the pilots intentionally turned off the cars. it spirals out of control to turn into this, well, if they intentionally turned off the a cars, they must have been trying to do something. But the end effect of this is one small mistake, and the next thing you know, you got a whole theory. There's a saying by Mark Twain, A lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. And we live in the living truth of that
0: quote. And this is why there has been so much time spent on so many theories that could occupy an entire series on this topic. I could easily have spent the last 10 minutes and then some debunking some of these theories, but I thought our time together would be more productive looking into why these theories even exist. I have spent days learning about potential explanations, only to realize they were based on poorly sourced reporting. With all of this in mind, I wanna get to two theories that I think can give us a chance at understanding what happened. So what happened to Malaysia Airlines Flight 370? In an article published in The Atlantic in June 2019, veteran journalist William Langowisha, who I reached out to but didn't hear back from, strongly suggested this was a case of murder-suicide. The following from his article is a bit lengthy, but worth it, and reads as follows. Quote, The truth, as I discovered after speaking in Kuala Lumpur with people who knew him or knew about him, that is Captain Zahari, is that Zahari was often lonely and sad. His wife had moved out and was living in the family's second house. By his own admission to friends, he spent a lot of time pacing empty rooms, waiting for the days between flights to go by. He was also romantic. He is known to have established a wistful relationship with a married woman and her three children, one of whom was disabled. And to have obsessed over two young internet models whom he encountered on social media and for whom he left Facebook comments that apparently did not elicit responses. Some were shyly sexual. He mentioned in one comment, for example, that one of the girls who was wearing a robe in a posted photo looked like she had just emerged from a shower. Zahari seems to have become somewhat disconnected from his earlier, well-established life. He was in touch with his children, but they were all grown and gone. The detachment and solitude that can accompany the use of social media, and Zahari used social media a lot, probably did not help. There is a strong suspicion among investigators in the aviation and intelligence communities that he was clinically depressed. Now, If you ask me, as someone diagnosed with major depressive disorder, this reporting is flimsy. I find it hard to believe in a diagnosis that someone is clinically depressed via a strong suspicion among investigators in the aviation and intelligence communities, or by people who, quote, knew Captain Zahari or knew about him. That's just my opinion. That said, I think it's important to play this scenario out this scenario, that it was a murder-suicide. Here again is investigative reporter Mark Williams Thomas.
1: When the FBI went into the captain's house, they found a flight simulator.
0: So Captain Zahari loved flying so much that he had a flight simulator, enabling him to pretend he was flying a real plane, even when at home.
1: But... On that flight simulation were some previous routes that he had covered in terms of simulation and they were exactly the same routes that it's believed that the plane took prior to crashing and you have to ask the question why would a pilot go in a flight simulator in his house to areas to which there was no reason for him to go because that wasn't on his destination at any stage And the only logical explanation is because he was running those as flight simulation tests prior to carrying out the final event.
0: The fact that the captain was running these flight simulations really drives home the idea that this was a murder-suicide. William Langowicz wrote, Forensic examinations of Zahari's simulator by the FBI revealed that he experimented with a flight profile roughly matching that of MH370, a flight north around Indonesia, followed by a long run to the south, ending in fuel exhaustion over the Indian Ocean. Malaysian investigators dismissed this flight profile, the flight simulation to the southern Indian Ocean, as merely one of several hundred that the simulator had recorded. That is true as far as it goes, which is not far enough. Victor Iannello, an engineer and entrepreneur, in Virginia, who has become another prominent member of the independent group and has done extensive analysis of the simulated flight, underscores what the Malaysian investigators ignored. Of all the profiles extracted from the simulator, the one that matched MH370's path was the only one that Sahari did not run as a continuous flight. In other words, taking off on the simulator and letting the flight play out hour after hour until it reached the destination airport. Instead, he advanced the flight manually in multiple stages, repeatedly jumping the flight forward and subtracting the fuel as necessary until it was gone. The article continues. Ionello believes that Zahari was responsible for the diversion. Given that there was nothing technical that Zahari could have learned by rehearsing the act on a game like Microsoft Consumer Product that is the simulator, Ionello suspects that the purpose of the simulator flight may have been to leave a breadcrumb trail to say goodbye. Referring to the flight profile that MH370 would follow, Ionello said of Zahari, quote, it's as if he was simulating a simulation, end quote. Without a note of explanation, Zahari's reasoning is impossible to know, but the simulator flight cannot easily be dismissed as a random coincidence. So, taking a step back, Captain Zahari's marriage isn't working out, and he experimented with a flight profile roughly matching that of MH370. Now, there's another piece to this in order to understand the murder-suicide theory.
1: So there's a very interesting point that supports the theory in terms of the suicide.
0: Here again is investigative reporter Mark Williams Thomas.
1: There is another significant piece of evidence that was found, which, the, which is the flaperon. So this is a piece of metal which sits on the wings, which is used by the pilot to land and take off. It's a very significant piece of metal. When that metal was washed up, it had very severe damage to it, jagged edge. And that would be indicative of it being down when the plane landed in the water. And why that's significant is that the only way that that flapper on could have been down is if it had been manually operated and put down by the pilot or the co pilot, somebody in that plane. So, the theory that the plane crashed with all the occupants out of it, not in control, doesn't stand up to any scrutiny with the evidence. The evidence is overwhelmingly telling you that that plane, at the point to which it took off and the point to which it landed, was under the control of an individual. And the evidence would suggest that that individual through his flight simulated activities prior to this day, was the captain. And that would mean that the captain committed mass murder and then suicide. But why was the captain
0: trying to land the plane? On Australia's 60 Minutes, air crash investigator Larry Vance said,
1: To make it disappear. Simple as that. He was taking it to a predestination, someplace that he had planned to take it, and he flew that six hours to get it there. The airplane on the bottom of the ocean right now, as I see it, the fuselage is in one piece, the left wing is still on it, the right wing may be off, the engines are separate, but you basically have four pieces of airplane down there. It's It's not scattered all over the bottom of the ocean.
0: This idea is that by landing the plane, there wouldn't be millions of pieces scattered around the ocean making it easier to find. And by landing it in this particular location, deep in the southern Indian Ocean, it'd be even harder to find. This theory, which can be kind of tough to follow, is what a lot of people seem to believe what happened. It's what the writer from the Atlantic piece strongly suggests happened. Additionally, there was a much-publicized broadcast on 60 Minutes Australia, in which several aviation experts also strongly suggested this is what happened. This led to headlines around the world, from the Washington Post to the Independent, publishing articles suggesting this was murder-suicide. And the theory started to make sense to me. But then I realized that I may have it all wrong. Despite marital issues, reported depression, a simulator with suspicious flight routes, and that flapper on, me pointing at Captain Zahari as being the one responsible for all of this was perhaps misinformed. Maybe I was missing the most obvious, although less popular, explanation. That's our next episode, which comes out in two days, the season finale of What Really Happened. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks, or go to JenksPod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.